Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Tonight on The Readout, will you accept the results of your election in November? I'm going to win the election and I will accept that result. If you lose, will you accept that? I'm going to win the election and I will accept that result. Arizona's Carrie Lake is just one of hundreds of Republican election deniers on the ballot this fall, which is why this election and more importantly, the day after the election are so incredibly important. Plus, Congressman Eric Swalwell joins me with an exclusive sneak peek at a chilling new ad depicting the awful possibilities of a post-Roe America. And later, the origin of the once broadly inspiring word woke and how it's been co-opted by the right to be used as an epithet. We begin tonight with just three weeks to go until the midterm elections on November 8th. But it's the day after the election that I want you to focus on. Just imagine, imagine waking up on November 9th and not knowing which party will control the House or the Senate or some key state offices. Imagine it taking weeks to finish counting all the absentee and military votes in states like California, where it literally does sometimes take weeks. So what we think is the result on election night changes, just like in 2020. Or imagine that there are lawsuits by the declared losers or fake audits, leaving lots of results in limbo. The delayed tallies actually are not unusual at all. They are literally how elections work. But these are anything but usual times. Because Donald Trump is now the model for how lots of Republican candidates are likely to respond. In 2020, Trump's relentless claims that the election was stolen took our democracy to the brink. And now a majority of Republican candidates on the ballot, nearly 300 of them, echo that big lie. How are they going to respond if it takes a while to count the votes? In 2020, you had people who threatened election workers as ballots were being counted. And there were already threats against election wars going into this election, to the point where precincts are being equipped with panic buttons for poll workers and vote counters to use. So what happens if some of these Republican candidates lose? We got a preview from Arizona Republican Senate candidate Blake Masters, who is already claiming in advance that the election will be stolen because the state is using the same voting machines as it did in 2020. So, of course, rigged. Also in Arizona, the Republican gubernatorial candidate, Carrie Lake, says the only way she will accept the result of the election is if she wins, which is what Trump said in 2020. And they're not alone. Last month, The Washington Post questioned 19 Republican candidates in key battleground states, and a dozen of them declined to answer or refused to commit to accepting the results. And we've all seen what happened when Donald Trump defied reality in 2020. What could happen if these candidates refuse to concede in races all across this country. Right now, in the nation's capital, five members of the extreme right-wing group, the Oath Keepers, are on trial for seditious conspiracy tied to their role in the January 6th attack, which again was a physical war waged against the fact of Trump losing the election. The Oath Keepers, along with other extremist groups like the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters, they've got members throughout the country standing back and standing by, awaiting their next order to be posted on Truth Social or 8chan or Gab. Our democracy is still in critical condition 
from the last election. So the question is, can it survive another round of attacks? I'm joined now by Barbara McQuaid, former U.S. attorney and law professor at the University of Michigan, and Tim Miller, writer at large for The Bulwark. Thank you both for being here. I want to read a New York Times headline, um, uh, Barb, and get your take on it. And this is what The New York Times writes. In the two years since 2020, groups of right-wing activists have banded together, spreading false claims of widespread election fraud or misconduct. Now those activists are inserting themselves in the vote count with a broad and aggressive effort to monitor voting in search of evidence that confirms their theories. Many activists have been mobilized by some of the same people who tried to overturn Trump's election in 2020 of groups like Truth Social that are like, you know, we want to make voting feel like you're being followed by the police. You've got Ron DeSantis activating the nation's only election police and already bragging about arresting people. These vibes to me, Barb, feel like they're setting up to do what Trump did, but literally nationwide. How concerned are you about the same kind of threat? I'm very concerned, Joy. I'm concerned about the lack of legitimacy after the election, but I'm also concerned about the effect this kind of behavior can have on voter turnout. It could indeed suppress the voter turnout. If you are fearful that there is an election police that's going to be at your polling place, you may choose to stay home. Or it could cause just the kind of cynicism of people not knowing what to believe. These elections are rigged or they're not going to be fair anyway. And so people might just stay home and not come out and vote. And so all of those scenarios are very bad for democracy. So I think it's very concerning. And it is a a state of where we've come in America that if you don't like the outcome of an election, uh, then just lie about it and say that you won. It's a a terrible thing for a country that believes in self-government. You know, and Tim, it's interesting. I mean, I think you can go back to 2000, you know, and there were a lot of people who said not my president about George W. Bush, right? After he, you know, lost the popular vote and won the election. Like our system builds in this possibility that you can lose the popular vote and still be elected, which is itself problematic for continuing people's faith in democracy. But in the last 20 years, you've gone from that and people questioning the results in 2000 to people literally saying, Joe Biden is a hologram. He's not really the president. He's propped up in the basement of the White House. Trump is really the president and literally willing to fight and kill to establish that as the real facts when that's the facts in their head. And so I wonder if you, as somebody who used to be about reforming the Republican Party, are you concerned? Because I honestly cannot envision any of these Republicans doing a speech that like John McCain did when he lost to Barack Obama. Yeah, a lot there, Joy, or Al Gore, <clears throat> excuse me, in 2000. I, mean, you do it, I yes. think about my childhood. I think about those uh, sore loserman bumper stickers that used to be yes. on, which was play on Gore Lieberman. And, and yeah. you know, those uh, that was like Republicans back then, proto-lib owning, like dunking on the Democrats. Oh, you, you get uh, uh, you're such sore losers. But in reality, I compared to what is happening now. Uh, you couldn't have, have lost in a more dignified manner than Al Gore did in 2000. In an actual close election, I, Donald Trump got killed. I, he lost, uh, you know, there were four states that needed to flip for Donald Trump to win. It wasn't a particularly yeah. close election. Uh, and and yet still, you know, we, we saw what we saw on January 6th. So, look, I do think that the the difference between then and now is extremely dramatic. And I, I, I'm concerned. I think that there are certain places where Republicans will talk a big game. We saw this with Larry Elder in California last year. He talked a big game about not accepting right. the results. 
And then he didn't follow through. Not everybody is as demented as Trump and being able to pull off something like this. But I do worry about certain places in particular. And you just showed Arizona, I think, is a prime spot. Carrie Lake does seem like she has the Trumpian ability to just deny reality and be forceful about it. And, 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 and you know, we saw and I'm, I worry not just about the turnout like Barb says, but about the safety of election workers yeah. uh, in places like Arizona, where these th- kind of threats are already happening in the lead up to the election. And I, do, I think that we probably will not know on election night, at least one of those two or three important Arizona elections, Senate, governor and secretary of state. And so then we will have this period, you know, like we did in 2020 of a couple of days where things will be unknown. You know, you can imagine mobs uh, as- assembling outside of voting places where they're doing the counting or the, or the recounting, taking in the uh, absentee ballots. So I think that's something to be concerned about. And the fact that no one is speaking up about Carrie Lake, I mean, even the quote unquote good Republican Glenn Youngkin is campaigning for her this week. Right? There's nobody yeah. that is, even back in the Trump era, at least we're a handful of us that were saying, no, this is wrong. No one is saying that now. And I think that's a very bad trajectory. Yeah. And going again, Youngkin is like a book banner. So it's like, I don't even know if he's the good Republican. But I mean, the thing is, Barb, on that point, you know, the great Steve Kornacki, you know, (laughs) when we sit and talk about, you know, sort of what's going to happen in elections, he's the the guy who sort of explains the mechanics of these things. California is a slow vote, a slow counting state. So we literally might go into election night not knowing who's going to, for instance, control the House, because there are so many congressional seats in California. Let's say they take a long time to count them. You could literally think one thing on election night about who's going to control the Senate. Let's say it looks like the Republicans are going to assume control. And then two weeks later, when California finishes counting all its ballots, the Democrats control the House. There's nothing illegal or nefarious about that, because that's just actually the time it takes to count votes. But you have a whole slate in Arizona a whole slate of them who are all running as election deniers together as a ticket. You have people like Masters uh, and you have people like uh, Mastriano in Pennsylvania who are all primed to take that scenario, which is literally the scenario that Trump faced and say, see that democracy is a lie. This election was a lie. We won. And then how do you stop many insurrections across the country? We already saw people get close to violent in Arizona last time. This is what I worry about, is that it'll get violent in multiple states at the same time. Are you worried about that? I am, Joy, and it's very destabilizing for not only our democracy, but our national security. Uh, you know, we are held up as a beacon around the world of a mo- as a model for democracy. And when uh, our, our elections become dysfunctional, other nations point to that and they mock us and it makes it harder for us to spread democracy around the world. If we had responsible leadership, leaders would be saying right now, look, folks, we've got to be patient. It may take a while for election results to come in. And it's different from the way it used to be. Yes, it used to be that we knew on election night. That's because we did a lot less voting by mail and allowing more access to polling places. This is the new reality, and this is good for democracy. It just takes a little longer to know the results. Instead, we have people saying just the opposite. Uh, you know, we were leading early, and then suddenly it flipped very right. suspiciously. There's a reason for that. Um, but that is the message that they are exploiting to seize power and just to sow chaos. There will be some who believe an election was stolen and those who will say an election was stolen, even they don't be- believe it, because they just want to cling to power Uh, and grab power. And there are people who will believe them and help them to make it so. You know, and the thing about it is, you know, Tim, you know, I I worked on campaigns. I I remember working the 04 campaign, which I literally left the news and went into politics because I was so anti the Iraq war. So when Bush won, 
in 04, it was devastating, you know, for me personally, because this was like, my, I really believe the Iraq war was wrong. But in the end, what I said to myself and to the people who were around me in that campaign was, you know, this country is strong enough to survive anything, including George W. Bush, right? And if you, if you stop believing that the country is strong enough to survive your the candidate you didn't want to be president being president or the person you didn't want to be governor, it really does mean you really don't really at the end believe in democracy at all. And I guess what worries me the most is the indifference of so many people to whether we're a democracy. They would rather have their way than have a democracy. I'm worried about what percentage of people actually feel that way. Are you? Uh, for sure. I, you know, I was in Arizona um, when I was taping, I was a guest host for the circus on Showtime and we were interviewing people. And this is what you just see on the ground at these events, at the Lake and Masters events. They, they do not trust that democracy is working uh, anymore. They do not trust the results. Uh, they do not think that Democrats are legitimate at all. And sure, I look, there were always there were people in 2004 that had conspiracy theories about the machines or whatever. But but what the difference was, was that those were passionate individuals Right. Who, who whose passions were tempered by leaders who did the right thing and said, we need to move forward. You know, we need to you know concede uh, responsibly, as John Kerry did. We don't have a, there's this vacuum of leadership on the right now. And so those crazy theories now can bubble up and they compound. And it's the opposite. Actually, they're stoking the, the conspiracies yeah. and making them believe it more. So, look, I do think that there are certain things that we should all do as part of the pro-democracy movement to try to make reforms to count quicker. Like, we should be counting absentee ballot votes before Election Day. And there's certain reforms yeah. that responsible people, I think, can do to maybe try to safeguard this. But that said, even if we make those changes, if there are bad actors stoking conspiracies and, and, and delegitimizing the other party, I, like that's a little bit out of our hands. And that's deeply concerning. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you, if your theory is it's only a legitimate election if I if I win, but if I if I lose, it's illegitimate. But if I win, the exact same systems and the same machines mean they were fine. That's not democracy. That's just you being a toddler, um, but a dangerous toddler. Bob, Barbara McQuaid, Tim Miller, thank you both very much. Up next on the readout, a contentious debate season produces a cornucopia of memorable moments, including a spectacularly unhinged rant from the rights QAnon queen and Minister of Disinformation, Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor, soon to be ex-Mrs. Green. Read out, continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. This is from my hometown. This is from Johnson County, from the sheriff of Johnson County, which is a legit badge. Does that have a resting authority or it's an honorary badge? It is an honorary badge, but they can call me whenever they want me and I have the authority to do things for them, to work with them on things. 
The National Sheriff's Association said an honorary badge, quote, is for the trophy case. Why make the decision well, to flash totally, it at the that debate? That is totally not true. The Republican candidate for the U.S. Senate in Georgia, Herschel Walker, is uh, in an exclusive inter- interview, as you just saw, with NBC's Kirsten Welter, Welker, defended flashing a fake police badge during Friday's debate with Raphael Warnock, Senator Raphael Warnock, after the Democrat called him out, called him out for lying about being a member of law enforcement. In the same interview, Walker acknowledged for the first time that he gave a $700 check to his ex-partner, but denied her allegation that he knew it was for an abortion, despite sending a get well soon card with it. Even as Walker seems to dig himself into a deeper and deeper holes, polling suggests that the race is extremely close. Now, you may be thinking, how is that even possible? Well, part of it is because Republicans just desperately want the Senate seat, and they don't really care who's behind is in it. They literally don't care that Walker has been accused of pointing a gun to his ex-wife's head, pretending to be both a policeman and an FBI trainee, paying for an abortion, which, by the way, in the minds of his own party counts as murder, just as long as he votes the way Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell want him to. But wait, there's more. Walker is the embodiment of what Republicans think a black candidate should be. Compliant. According to a USA Today and a columnist named Jerry Mathis Rutledge, quote, for some Republicans, any warm body that can be used as a pawn is sufficient. The fact that Herschel Walker happens to be black is an irony too delicious to resist for some voters who have chosen to rally behind one of the most unqualified political candidates in recent memory. Joining me now is Cornell Belcher, Democratic pollster and strategist and MSNBC political analyst. Cornell, let me read um, a little bit more of that column. And it says here, Walker's candidacy is not problematic because of the obvious political strategy to split back black voters. Walker's problematic because he's a perfect caricature of every negative stereotype the black community has fought against for decades. Competent conservative black Republicans exist. So there was no need to settle for an incompetent one unless part of the goal was the extra dig of embarrassing the black community. Um, and I was on with uh, my friend Alex Wagner last week, and this was the conversation we were having. I genuinely believe that part of the reason that Republicans, right-wing mag Republicans like Walker, is that he's a walking black stereotype, doesn't take care of his kids, prolific, uh, sexually prolific, not responsible, a liar, but also athletic and compliant. Your thoughts? <laughs> well, I, I did. I, I saw I watched you uh, and I thought you were very good. Uh, and quite frankly, I don't know how I follow that up. Uh, but I will say this. It is, you know, we've seen this in data before. It is where, you know, those who are the most racially averse in, in the electorate, the idea of of them voting for a walker, it gives them someplace soft to land. Right. It, it inoculates and take some of the and, and and makes them seem you know not bigoted or racist because look I'm I'm vo- I'm voting I'm voting for Walker never to mind the fact that he is that almost everything he stands for is is against the interest of and it and it's sort of against the political agenda of African Americans it does give them some place uh, nice nice to land and it sort of assages them of 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 the sort of the bigotry or race or sort of racial aversion version uh that they have so for so a lot of reasons he's he's important in that sort of psychological way but you know they go a little deeper which is i i never i never go, sort of go down this track but I, but joy stay with me here he reminds me so much of the character uh samuel jackson's character in Django, and understand for, and understand for so for so much of america especially in the south the beauty mm-hmm. of that character was is explaining to America that look, uh, slavery and this sort of oppression of of black people does not happen 
without Samuel Jackson's character there beside that white guy, beside him, and it's in many ways guiding him and leading him. And it, it, it just doesn't happen. So in lots of ways, Herschel Walker really does remind me of Samuel Jackson's character um, in, 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 in Django, you know, there beside the, the, the white slave master, giving him giving him comfort um, and counsel. Well, I mean, and the thing is, you know, I think about this. Uh, there's a there's a piece that talks about how this is also emblematic of the Republican Party's fall itself. This is the Atlantic poll quote. Um, this is a quote from them. Like so many uh, who now represent the Republican Party, Walker displays not just a lack of interest in serious ideas, but a contempt for them. Benightedness is chic. The Republican Party didn't write a platform for its convention in 2020. And why should it have? A party platform, after all, is a former statement of the principles and policy goals to which a party is committed. When a party becomes a cult of personality, interested in power but not ideas, platforms become extraneous. I think about Tim Scott in, in South Carolina. Republicans love Tim Scott because he's a tea partier. He embodies their values. But when Tim Scott tried one time to embody actual power and pass a police reform bill, he helped with Cory Booker. He sat down and negotiates a bill. Who under cut him and pulled the rug out for under, from under him. His fellow senator from South Carolina, Lindsey Graham, knifed him, went to the sheriffs and got that bill destroyed. Because the thing is, is that it's fine for him to get up and smile and say, you know what, my family went from the fields to the Senate. Woohoo. And, and wave nicely at the Republican Party. But even he, as somebody who's supposed to be an insider, is not allowed to wield power. They love Clarence Thomas. Right. But it's only as Clarence Thomas is literally attacking the interests of black people. That makes him more popular, right? The more, if he were to suddenly kind of try to represent a bit the interests of black people, oh, you know what? You're now no longer in, you know? And so I, I feel like there is sort of a demonstration of wanting to attack communities of color, but needing a community, a person from, that seems to be from the community to do it. And, and, that's, and that's where uh, the Herschel Walkers come, come in well. But to your point about, about politics, policy, and power, you know, my father had a saying, you know, I, I'm from the South, and my father always had a saying, he, he didn't originate this saying, but it was true, is that in the South in particular, blacks and whites could always get along. You know, blacks and whites always found a, a, a way to get along because they had to, such close proximity. Blacks just couldn't have power. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But blacks just can't have power. And the moment you try to have power, well, then it becomes, but then it becomes problematic. And I think you see yeah. that unfolding right now and in, in across the country uh, with those two yeah. examples that you just pointed out. Let's let's go to Marjorie Taylor Greene, another Georgia candidate who has embodied straight up racist ideas bananas, bizarre ideas, anti-Semitic ideas. She just wraps it all into one weirdo package. And yet she is essentially announced. I mean, to me, she's the Marine Le Pen of American politics. She will have power if Kevin McCarthy becomes speaker. She said he has to give her power. And she's right, right? She suddenly becomes one of the most powerful Republicans in the country if Republicans take the House, no? She, she does. And this is the frustration that I think a lot of us have is that when you uncover what she's about and what so many of, quite frankly, the Republicans who will come into power if, if, if they take back the House, uh, embody and embolden, um, it's scary stuff. And so while we are fixated on the price of gas, which is, which is a problem, Right. Joy, I hope at some point we don't look back, especially, you know, you look back at your your your, your granddaughter and they say, what happened? Right. Yeah. What what is yeah. this America that we live in? And people will go, well, 
you know, gas prices were really high. So we weren't paying attention <laughs> to authoritarianism yeah. and and sort of you know sexism and 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 bigotry because we were focused on gas prices. And there's polling out right now that says, you know, I don't always agree with some of it, but says right now that again, the economy is such a huge issue, is pushing down other issues. So we may have an election that is simply about the economy. And mm-hmm. in doing so, probably lose our democracy. Yeah. And then people will be shocked that, you know, suddenly their abortion rights are gone nationally. And then they'll say, what happened? You happened, voters. If you decide to vote, if you think Republicans have a cure for high gas prices or inflation, I got a bridge to sell you, you know, in Cleveland. They don't. You're literally short-sighted. And that is how Georgia goes from a state that's a state that's too that's too busy to hate. And it's got Tyler Perry making it a new Hollywood to becoming a state where abortion is illegal. And Marjorie Taylor Greene is the most Marjorie Taylor Greene and, and Herschel Walker are the representatives <laughs> of the great state of Georgia. How pathetic would that be? Cornell Belcher. That's just my I won't put that on you, Cornell Belcher. Thank you very much. And coming up next, a quick reminder. By the way, no, before I get to that reminder, early voting, it starts today in Georgia. Speaking of Georgia, today, today, today. For more information on registration, mail in and early voting in your state. You see that Q card right, a Q code right there on your screen, the Q code, scan it or go to NBCnews.com slash plan your vote. Please vote this year. It's very important. Still ahead. Scaring is caring, my friends. But even with Halloween right around the corner, you will not be seeing anything as scary as what's already happening to women in post-Roll America. What's being done to fight back? Straight ahead. Hey everyone, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? We're back with another installment of our special series with Pod 2024, The Stakes. I'm talking to experts about both Joe Biden and Donald Trump's records on specific policy areas during their time as president. This week, a biggie. AbortionEveryday.com founder Jess Valenti on the stakes of reproductive rights. Conservatives, Republicans would like us to believe that this is something that voters are sort of super polarized on, that we're evenly split down the middle. And that's just not true. Voters want abortion to be legal, even in red states, even in purple states. That's why we're seeing attacks on democracy. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. With the midterm elections just over three weeks away, a cruel reminder that the right of half the population to legally control their own bodies and reproduction is on the ballot. BuzzFeed reports that a middle school aged incest victim in Florida was unable to obtain an abortion there because she was beyond the state's 15 week limit. The child had to travel at least two, three states away to terminate the pregnancy, according to Planned Parenthood, as neighboring states have almost or completely banned abortion. A reminder, in April, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed into law the 15-week ban, which forced the child to travel out of state to seek medical care. The law in the not-so-free state of Florida makes no exceptions for cases of rape, incest, or human trafficking. A brand new digital ad from Congressman Eric Swalwell, debuting right here on The Readout, presents one possible chilling outcome of our post-Roe future. Oh, no, no. 
nom 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 nom. You're nom. weird. He is weird. But cute. Gross. The hell? Mary Anderson? Yes? I have a warrant for your arrest. Arrest for what? Penal code 243 violation. Unlawful termination of a pregnancy. You gotta be kidding me. That That is my personal business. That's for the courts to decide, ma'am. Your medical records have been subpoenaed and Dr. Landry's already in custody. No, my, my God, you, you, you can't just- You will have to submit to a physical examination. What? By who? No, no, no one's touching me. Oh, sure. Get that. Man, turn around. Oh Put oh your hands God. behind your back. Now. Why is this happening? Love you, honey bear. We're just enforcing the law here. Elections have consequences. Vote Democrat on November 8th. Stop Republicans from criminalizing abortion everywhere. Protect women's rights and freedom. Under his eye. Joining me now is Congressman Eric Swalwell, the Democrat from California behind that new ad. And Congressman, it's a chilling ad. This is only the second time I've watched it, and it's, it's, it makes my heart race every time I watch it. Uh, tell me about the origins of this ad and why you think it's important to run something like this in this election cycle. Yeah, thank you, Joy. It is chilling. And as a former prosecutor, when I looked at the Republicans' abortion laws, you know, criminalizing abortion, mandating pregnancy, I thought through, well, what is this going to look like as it plays out across America? And it's that scene right there. Uh, it, because, you know, many families who, you know, make this decision are, are in fact families. You know, they already uh, have uh, children, and I wanted that to be a part of the narrative. Uh, but also, you know, the husband stepping in, as any partner, husband, spouse, boyfriend would do if the police were trying to take away uh, their spouse uh, because of a new abortion law. And, and also the police. I wanted it to be clear that no police officer wants to be in this position. And for the officer to say, man, we're, we're, we're just doing our job, that's the horrible position we're going to put law enforcement in. I wish this was an exaggeration, but this is going to be the new reality in MAGA America if we do not win the midterms in both the House and the Senate. You know, and the thing about it is, you know, we already, when we talk about police reform, part of the issue is over-policing, right? Police are being asked to come in and police things like somebody's tag that's weird on their car, that they don't, that, that isn't correct on their car, or, you know, things that have really nothing to do with, you know, serious law-breaking, and so they're constantly in the community, and this mainly pertains to people of color, but they've now women are in that same position. I just want to give you some examples here. Uh, in Texas, this is now, this is before Republicans get full control, um, text and web searches about abortion have already been used to prosecute women. In Texas, the district attorney has dropped a case against a woman who was initially charged with murder for a self-induced abortion. Nebraska police used Facebook messages to investigate an alleged illegal abortion. Uh, Bloomberg reports in a post-real world, more miscarriages and stillbirth prosecutions await women. And right now in the state of Florida, Schools are asking student athletes to report their menstrual histories. They're doing this to try to stop trans girls from playing sports.
parents. But that means that the school, meaning the government, the local government, will have information on teenagers' menstrual cycles in, cycles in the state of Florida. As somebody who's a former prosecutor, talk about that a little more. Dig a little more into the, the position that puts police in, where they're essentially having to accost women and teenage girls, and the position that it puts the family members and these teenagers and women in. And, and I'll talk about it even more personal terms. My two brothers are patrol police officers. My father was a police officer, and most police officers in America, I, I really believe, want to go after violent crime. They don't want politicians and the government telling them that you now have to go knock on the door of a family and haul away uh, someone who made this very personal decision. And by the way, Joy, we are a country that has chosen unwisely to arm most Americans to the teeth. So imagine the combustible environment we have with police officers going door to door to take women who make this decision and knowing that we have so many firearms in America. This is not safe for police officers. It's certainly unfair uh, for women who make this decision. And it, in a MAGA-controlled House and Senate, could be the new reality, not just in Arizona and Texas and Florida, but every state in the union. Yeah, and, 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 I, and I was talking about over-policing. You know, they're already over-policing things like somebody smoking weed or selling Lucy cigarettes. Now you're saying police now have to, you know, essentially go after women for getting their own health care and anyone who helps them, Uber drivers, husbands, et cetera. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about some of the states where they're really pushing this. Michigan, a political headline. Michigan could soon become Texas. There's actually a ballot initiative on the ballot right now that would put the right to abortion into the state constitution. The law that it would repeal was written in 1931. Women barely had the right to vote in this country. What do you make of this aggression in red states to go back to, in some cases, 19th century law or early 20th century law? Well, I think it's also clear, Joy, that it's not about, quote, life. It's about control. It's about controlling women, and it's also about controlling families, because we saw over the weekend uh, that one uh, Senate candidate said that, uh, of course, we should go after uh, IVF as well. Uh, you know, it's not just that they don't want women to make this decision. They want you to make the decision in the way that they would make it themselves and completely take family planning away from every, every family in America. And we know that this is what they're going to do because Doug Mastriano, who is running for governor in Pennsylvania, said that he believes it would be murder. We see other candidates across the country saying the same thing. And so abortion's on the ballot. It's on the ballot in California, Proposition 1, uh, to codify it, also in Michigan. And my hope is that it brings out men and women up and down uh, the ballot uh, to make sure that this reproductive right is protected. Uh, Marjorie Taylor, I'm not sure if she still got the green, I know she's divorcing the green part of her name, um, has said that she would have to get power if, Kev if Kevin McCarthy becomes speaker. You know Kevin McCarthy. Do you, is there any chance that he would be able to resist a demand from the MAGA and the QAnon part of his caucus, which let's just face it is the majority of his caucus, that he, to, put a to put a national abortion ban on the floor? Would he have this, the, the moral strength or the political strength to resist doing that. Kevin McCarthy is a vessel state to the MAGA nation. He will go exactly where they take him. We can't count on him one bit uh, to be a guardrail for women's reproductive rights. Congressman Eric Swalwell, man, thank you very much. I really appreciate you being here tonight. Thank you for uplifting this uh, it's My pretty scary issue. Thank you. All right, cheers. All right, up next. How the word woke went from an inspirational metaphor to a right-wing insult and how the likes of Kanye West and his pal 
Candace, I think her name is, have turned themselves into avatars of the anti-woke movement. We'll be right back. Before wokeness was a hashtag co-opted and weaponized in the culture wars, stay woke meant to be alert, to be awake to the discrimination and oppression that impacted black people. Injustices like the slow federal response to Hurricane Katrina, which disproportionately devastated black communities. It was Kanye West who called out the systemic racism that we witnessed after the storm when he stunned everyone by ditching the teleprompter and saying this four days after Katrina hit New Orleans. George Bush doesn't care about black people. Remember that Kanye West, who, by the way, had just dropped his second studio album, Late Registration, exploring social issues and cementing his fame. He basically called the U.S. president indifferent to the suffering of black folks during a live TV fundraiser. That's about as woke as it gets. But that Kanye doesn't exist anymore. Today, we have Ye, a darling of the far fascist right a black pop culture icon in a MAGA hat, chilling with white replacement theory proponent Tucker Carlson, chummy with Trump, and co-signing all the rotten things they believe. He's now buying the right-wing social media platform Parler since he got kicked off Twitter for echoing far-right anti-Semitic talking points. He went after Jewish people in a string of online attacks, suggesting that musician Sean Diddy Combs is controlled by Jewish people, a common anti-Semitic trope, saying slavery was a choice and that George Floyd didn't die from police officers holding him down and compressing his chest with a knee, no, no, but rather from fentanyl, another right-wing conspiracy theory. Oh, and let's not forget his grifty White Lives Matter apparel that he debuted in a Fashion Week stunt alongside fellow Sunken Place resident Candace, whatever her name is, I can't remember. Kanye now embodies the anti-woke movement, devolving into everything that he once fought against, which is all to say, yay, doesn't care about black people. Joining me now is Michael Harriet, contributor at The Grio and author of Black AF History, The Unwhitewashed Story of America, which is out in January. I cannot wait to get my copy. And, you know, I, I, I remember texting you about this and asking if you were going to be available to come on and talk about this. And I'm so glad that you are, because I need people to understand where the term woke actually came from. So the floor is yours, my friend. Right. So the first time we have any documented proof is in a recording that's in the Library of Congress by a blues musician named Huddy Leadbelly Ledbetter. And uh, he was wrote a song about the Scottsboro Boys, um, four black men who were accused of raping a white woman, falsely accused in 1920. And at the end of the song, just as it's trailing off, he said, you know, if you're going through Alabama, you know, you better watch out for the white folks. Stay woke. And from then on, it became kind of a, a saying amongst black people. Uh, we see it in the 1940s with the United Mine co-workers in West Virginia who were, you know, fighting to get equal pay. And they said they might kind of try to starve us out and keep us asleep, but we'll stay woke longer. Um, and it's been a, a common saying uh, until... Uh, you know, white people discovered it you know, a few years ago. Uh, I like I always like to make the joke that before white pe- before black people started listening to podcasts, I actually had was the co-host of a podcast called The Stay Woke Show. And <laughs> the, the host called me one day and said, man, we're not going to uh, 
we're not, we got to change the name because white people discovered, you know, what woke means. So it's always been a term that signaled to black people amongst each other that we have to watch out for the things that could harm us. And since it became, you know, since it eked into the mainstream, it's been weaponized yeah. just the same way as, you know, black power was weaponized and yeah. the civil rights movement was weaponized. Whatever movement we come up with for freedom or justice, it's always going to be weaponized. So it's nothing new. But, yeah. you know, the idea that it's being weaponized by one by someone who we gave power and popularity is kind of new. Well, I mean, the thing is, is that to me, wokeness became dangerous for white supremacists when white kids adopted it after George Floyd. I mean, during the pandemic, when you had white kids finally we outsiding and protesting against police brutality, it was white kids doing that and declaring themselves to be woke and saying, you know what? I want to be aware of racism. I want to be aware of, you know, the, the dark past in this history, uh, in the history of this country. That's what freaked out people like Ron DeSantis is, oh, no, you can't learn anything about black history. That's anti-white. You now have people like Marjorie Taylor Greene calling just teaching about black history, anti-white racism. It's now become super mainstream. And you're right. The thing I think that is painful for a lot of black folks is watching somebody like Kanye, who we made him famous and we gave him fame and gave him support and made him legit. Now he's literally turned it against us and even threw some anti-Semitism in for, for extra flavor. Yeah, I think. I think that's one of the problems. And the other problem is it is because of fear, right? Like the fear of not just pe black people having power, but unity among yes. a multiracial coalition of Americans who want equality. That is the scary thing, right? Like when black people were saying, well, for the last 100 years, it wasn't scary until That's white right. kids got woke. You know, it's the same thing with critical race theory, right? It's, it was yep. being taught for 40 years. And then when white people said, hey, we maybe should learn more about not just black history, but what how we were complicit in continuing inequality, that's when it got scary and that's when critical race theory was demonized. Um, it wasn't, yeah. you know, that when black people were fighting for equal rights that it got scary. It was when the, the civil rights movement uh, was on TV and in newspapers and in the and the sentiment of the country started changing that those people became communists and, and agitators and violent yeah. thugs, right? So we see this throughout history that the freedom, uh, the movement for freedom and justice isn't necessarily that scary. It is the multiracial coalition right. working toward the same goal that is scary yep. to people. The, the biggest threat to fascism is empathy. And the thing that they don't want their kids and their grandkids to feel, because that's what frightens them, is empathy toward people who don't look like them or worship like them or love like them. That empathy is what they're afraid of. That's what they're trying to kill. Michael Harriet, you're the best. Thank you very much. Really appreciate you being here. Okay, coming up next. Speaking of lack of empathy, the Russian military has abandoned literally all pretense of humanity. They're just now terrorizing Ukraine's capital city with kamikaze drones. Seriously, we're back after this. We're getting new reports of continued Russian drone attacks on the Ukrainian capital. NBC News, NBC News correspondent Cal Perry has the very latest from Kyiv. 
Joy, it was once again morning rush hour here, interrupted by the sound of explosions. At least 28 drones fired this morning all at once by Russian forces, according to officials, five of them breaking through air defense systems and striking that residential building. At least four people dead. Another four wounded. Dozens of people rushed to the hospitals. Now, the government had long warned that Putin would move to this tactic, that he would move away from the more expensive cruise, cruise missiles to these crude drones. They fly low, they fly slow. You can hear them coming. They sound like mopeds as they pass overhead. That's why the locals here have nicknamed them mopeds. And tonight, just in the past few hours, we've had more explosions as these drones continue to be fired at the Capitol. We've seen air defense systems going into action, trying to shoot these drones out of the sky. The other thing that we're noticing here is that the target seems pretty clear. The Russians are trying to hit energy infrastructure targets. Again, to try to force the city behind me into blackness, but so often they're missing and they're hitting these residential areas. It's one more indication that while the Russian army may be inept, while they may be incapable of striking targets directly, they are still capable of being very deadly and lashing out at these residential targets as they continue to lose ground on the battlefield, both in the eastern part of the country, Joy, and in the southern part. Cal Perry, thank you very much. And that is tonight's readout. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.